gonna get all set up over here. It sounds like my mic is working. All of you can hear me? This is good? We're doing well. Yeah, shout, shout out to the, the rising sixth grade boys. Yeah, that's my small group. I love them, they're awesome. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Man. Well, I, I must confess to you all, uh, I'm pretty nervous to be up here. I gotta be honest. Uh, I thought I prepared a lot, but I recognize that as I hold this book, as I heard, as I, I hold the, the holy word of God that has this collection of all of the stories of how God's been faithful to his people from generation to generation to generation that I am unworthy to even hold this book. And it's such a gift that we're able to come here, that we're able to learn from God, that God would use me to be his mouthpiece in this, this tiny place uh, that even though my wisdom is not enough, <laughs> that who, who, who can I be as a, a 20-year-old college student to possibly give advice to all of you? Right? I haven't even lived that much more life than you all have. But I do not come today to bring you the most creative message of all time or to bring you some original new revelation that God just spoke directly to me. Uh, we come to open up the word of God together and to learn from him. And so I'm really excited to do that. I'm realizing I did not bookmark in my Bible this passage, so I'm going to read it from the slides for you guys. <laughs> Can we pull up the first slide? Awesome. Okay, so let me do, let me do a little bit of re a recap a recap before we go into this. This entire uh, sermon series, we've been talking about this idea of the wilderness, how God led his people before the promised land, he led them into a wilderness season of testing. And so we started with Brett teaching us about Jesus's temptation when he was in the wilderness, showing that even though we often succumb to our temptations, Jesus never succumbed to his temptations, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We saw from Kennedy's talk, talking about encountering God, how Moses had this special encounter with God, even though he was not such a special person. But God encounters us not because we're special, but because he is a God who desires to be encountered and desires to be known. We saw from Sarah's talk how when there was the, the death of the, the Egyptian soldiers on one side and the death of the, the waters and the sea of destruction on the other, how we feel like we're surrounded in life, how God leads us into impossible situations to show us that he is the God of the impossible and that he can do anything, that his word is powerful to accomplish all that it sets out to do. But now we're actually in the wilderness. Now we've made it. God's people have been delivered out of Egypt. It took 40 days for God to get Israel out of Egypt. But now we're going to see it's going to take 40 years for God to get Egypt out of Israel. And we'll learn what that means tonight. So it's a bit lengthy of a story. I'll, re I'll explain it along the way so it'll be all right. Let's get into the Lord's word, shall we? All right, Exodus 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt and the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around, pots of meat. We had all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. Next slide. We're going to skip a little bit ahead in the story. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. 
Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is, keep, is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses had commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath of the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was, like white, it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled, and they ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. <laughs> oh, yeah, you guys know the thing. I, I didn't grow up in a church that did that. This is, like, actually a new thing to me, so it's always funny when I say it and then people say it. It's like, whoa. <laughs> okay, a bit beefy. But uh, in the beginning of the story... Actually, here, let's do this. Something I always try to do when I read the Bible is I really want to put myself in the shoes of the characters. I want, I want to get into the story. I almost want to look at the Bible like it's a script in a play and see that I can play one of these roles. Oftentimes when we grow up in church, we're used to just hearing these stories. I'm sure most of you guys have already heard the story of manna. But maybe you haven't felt the emotion of the text. Maybe you haven't imagined what it would really be like to be there. Now, when I first read this text, I was a bit confused. I was like, Lord, why are, you, why are you mad that they're complaining against you? They had no food, right? And I, I, my misconception came from the beginning where it talks about how they had been around 30 days, they had been wandering in the wilderness. I assume they hadn't eaten in 30 days. That's not true. That's not how it is. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, they brought their animals, they brought any spare food they had left, and it lasted them about 30 days. And so they had just run out of food. And now they're like, Lord, what are you going to do? And they doubted God. And instead of asking the Lord in faith that he would be pleased to provide, they asked him with doubt in their heart. Even though a month before this, they saw the Red Sea get parted. And a pillar of fire led them into the wilderness to where they were to go. They've already seen all of this, but they still like, are complaining to the Lord and they're so upset. And it's a picture of what we do. We often complain and grumble to the Lord. Again, growing up in church, I, I heard this story a lot, and I really never understood the significance of it. But clearly, it's an important lesson that God wanted to teach them. After all, it's a lesson God taught them every single day for 40 years. So whatever happened here, it's important that we figure out what's going on. What's the heart of God behind this text? This wasn't some one-off miracle that God did one time, maybe forget about it. This was the lifestyle they lived as a people. 
When you have to think about the Israelites, something that Sarah mentioned in her talk uh, before is that the Israelites were in captivity for 400 years. And so because of that, if, if your grandparents, your great-grandparents, their great-great-great-parents all grew up in captivity, you forget who you are. You forget your entire cultural identity. The Israelites were chosen to be the people of God, but they had long forgotten that. And so the Lord was using this wilderness season to remind them, you are my people, I am your God, this is how you relate to me. And through the various miracles they saw, God taught them about his character, they taught them about his nature. Now one of the the key, actually that's two slides away, hold on. (laughs) I'm remembering. An interesting thing, it took 40 years for the Israelites to go from Egypt to the promised land. Now if we were to plug into Google Maps how long it would take to walk from Egypt to the promised land now. Can anyone take a guess how long that would take? 144 hours. Oh, was it already up before I said it? Okay, great. So it's six days. It's six days. And so this is fascinating to me. It would only take six days to walk there, but it took 40 years. Part of me kind of wanted to do the math in doing this of like, how little would you have to walk each day for 40 years to actually make it there. But the reason that God kept them in the wilderness is because he had lessons to teach them. Before they were able to walk and be the people of God that God had called them to be, there's some essential things they had to know and they had to understand before they were able to move in that direction. And so God purposely kept them in this place. One of the key principles of how we interpret the Bible, how we understand confusing texts like this, is I don't want to give you some novel interpretation of what this miracle means. I don't want to infer what it means. There's actually a verse of the Bible that tells us directly what this whole miracle thing was about. Uh, If you go to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, if we can get that on the screens, God actually says why he did this manna thing. So I also want to read that. It says, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you, in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your descendants had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So this passage reveals to us what God was trying to teach them. God purposely let them get hungry down to their most basic core needs. God already provided in these magical, crazy ways, these these parting of the sea, these pillars of fire, but God wanted to show them that he is the God that provides in the small, that even down to their basic food, their basic water, every single day they needed nourishment from God. Now, Now, can you all imagine what it would be like if every night you went to bed, your fridge was empty, your pantry was empty, there's no McDonald's on the street, there's no Walmart around the corner, there's nothing. Every night you go to bed with no certainty that you're gonna have food tomorrow. Is that scary? But what if the Lord promised you that every morning when you woke up, there'd be exactly the amount of food you needed for that day, no more, no less, on on your countertop every morning? I think there's two responses to this. Either this is terrifying, if we don't trust God, if we don't believe him at his word, this is a terrifying existence. I feel like I have no assurance that I'm going to eat tomorrow. But if I do trust God, if I believe him at his word, this actually causes great comfort to my soul that I know that I don't have to stress about where I'm going to find food, that I'm, where I'm going to find my provision, that the Lord is pleased to provide it. And so when God was leading them through this wilderness season, he wanted to teach them that he's the God who provides. Much in the same way for our lives, God does not just provide bread, he provides everything. Everything you need, Jesus can give you. 
We don't need to spend our entire lives stressing of how we're going to survive, what should we do, how are we going to make enough money, how are we going to get by, how are we going to solve all of these crises going on in our life. We were designed and built by God to trust him and to depend on him. If you think of ourselves like cars, if you put gas in a car and drive it, that's a lot easier than getting out of the car and pushing it all the way to your destination. There's clearly one way that vehicle was meant to function. And the gas for us, what's meant for us to function is our trust and our dependency on God. As I've meditated on these scriptures, as I've thought about what it means to really live every single day in dependence on God, I've realized that depending on the Lord, trusting in him for provision, does two primary things to us. So the first point, I've got to flip through my notes. It'll be up on the screen. Trusting God kills our worries. Whether you realize it or not, you all have been born into a culture of worry. I'm sure from the moment you were born, you've grown up in schools telling you've got to get good grades so you can go to this school, and then when you're at this school, you've got to get grades at that school so you can go to a better school, so you can go to college, and then you've got to get grades at college so you can get a good job, and you've got to get a good job so you can make enough money, so you can have a good family, so you can have a good life. And this keeps going on and on and on in this train that's exhausting. But we weren't meant to worry about all of these things. The world is too big for us to understand. I understand this pretty deeply right now. I'm going into my senior year of college next year. So I have one last year and then I'm, then I'm out in the world. And I don't really know what I'm doing yet. And so this has become a source of worship in my heart that God, you're the God who gives bread in the desert. You're the God who lets me get to these dry places when I'm out of all options to prove to me that it is only by your grace that I am sustained. When we don't trust God, that's the place that worry flourishes. I've heard it said that worry is the flesh's counterfeit to prayer. That when we don't have control, our brains think, well, if I just think about everything all the time, I can give myself this illusion that I'm in control of it. And that's not true. <laughs> that, that's what causes immense anxiety in us, that I'm just thinking about all of the bad things happening all the time. But if I trust that I'm living my entire life on dependency on God, I don't have to live that way. I can lay it down. I'm, I'm my conscience is free to just live life and to do the calling that God has called me to do. To wake up every morning and say, Jesus, I'm yours. I love you. You love me far more than I, I love me. Far more than I love you back. Whatever you want me to do to God, hey God, tell me. Say the word and I'll obey it. And it allows us to live this life in friendship with God and obedience to God that's honestly fun. It's enjoyable to wake up every morning and know that Jesus is my best friend and that he's going to guide me everywhere I need to go. And that I don't have to worry about making sure everything is straight and everything's going to work out on my own because I have a God who provides for me. I think often there are, there are cultural responses to this immense culture of worry that we have. Some people give up. Nihilism is a huge thing. If you haven't heard that term, it's basically this, this idea that you just give up on life, that nothing has meaning, that everything is, is void of any purpose at all. I know what it's like to, to, to live a life where the present moment is so difficult you can't even imagine the future. Like your brain won't, won't let you go there. It's just too painful to even think you'd even make it that far because you're already too stressed out where you're at. And so you just give up. It's easier to go through life without purpose sometimes when you're bogged down with worry. But we don't have to give up because God is going to provide for us. Maybe it's this kind of alpha male mentality that I can just be the most disciplined person ever 
I can wake up at 6, no, 5 a.m., 4 a.m., every day. I can drink my blended raw eggs. I can go to the gym all the time. I can be strong. And out of our insecurities and out of our worries, we fight hard to have control over our own lives, thinking that'll heal it, that'll heal this need in our soul. But it won't. Only trusting in God will do that. Another major thing we see in the story is that even though God had proven that he was trustworthy, the Israelites disobeyed him over and over again. And we see that in the scriptures, there is always a connection between trust and obedience. I know if I stand up, we can go to the next slide, by the way. Uh, I know if I stand up here and I just yell at you to obey God and just, just work harder, try better, do better, all of these things, if I just read the list of all the requirements the Bible has of you, that's going to be terrible motivation to actually go out and live a holy life. That's not what causes us to obey. And I know what it's like to grow up in an environment where instead of being taught to trust God, and out of that friendship, out of that relationship, out of learning that God loves you and desires you and knows you so deeply and that he wants what's best for you, and then obeying his commands because you know he gives you his commands as a gift because he loves you, if we're just taught this legalistic understanding of I just have to do this so I can be a good Christian. I just have to do these things so I can be accepted. I'll never be enough unless I do X, Y, Z. If we grow up in that mentality, that traps us in this slavery or to our sin. It's the opposite of freedom. The law does not free us. God simply telling us what to do does not free us. What frees us is trusting in the one who frees us. Ultimately, the greatest provision that God gave was not even the manna in the desert. It was Jesus. Jesus says in John chapter 6, he says, I am the bread of life that comes down from heaven. That just as God opened up the heavens, that manna came down to earth and gave life to the world, so the Son of Man, so Jesus, left his throne in heaven, comes down to the earth and gives life to the world. That even this whole manna thing is actually a foreshadowing of Jesus coming. That as God fed these Israelites in the wilderness so they could make it to the promised land, if we think of the promised land as heaven and the wilderness as now, and God's using this life to prepare us for the next one. Jesus is the ultimate provision that steps down from his throne in heaven, enters into human history, lives the perfect life that we can never live, dies the death that we deserve to die, resurrects on the third day, and now all who believe and put their faith and trust in him and repent of their sins can receive the eternal life that he paid for. And he will put his Holy Spirit inside of you, and that is only what can cause you to actually obey. Not perfectly, but obeying God comes out of trusting him and receiving the benefits of that trust, receiving the benefits of the cross. If you can go to the next slide, there's another verse I, I always love when I look at it. It's 1 John 5, 3. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Maybe many of you have grown up only seeing God's commands as burdens. Ah, God, I guess I have to do this. I guess your word tells me I have to do this. And it's always, it feels like this burden upon your conscience of I have to, I have to, I have to. But when we learn to truly love God, when we see him show up in our life time and time again, over and over again, that his faithfulness is so good, when we taste and see that the Lord is good, his obedience no longer becomes a burden. Obedience becomes a gift. I want to obey God. I'm not able to do it in my own strength. I'm not able to do it in my own power. But I love when I'm able to do it because I know that he wants what's best for me, that he is my best interest at heart. 
that if I really believe as a Christian what it says in the, the prophet Jeremiah that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things, who can understand it? That because I was born in a fallen world, that there's desires and things in my heart that I wish weren't there. There's affections that I have that I wish I didn't want. There's things that are bad for me that I like that are, are they're not good. They're just as the child looks at a stove and it's glowing and says, wow, pretty colors, I want to touch that. Right? And the parent knows, no, that's dumb. Like, the, think of the age gap, the, the intelligence gap between that three-year-old kid and me. I'm way smarter than a three-year-old kid. But think of how much bigger of a gap there is between me and God. Between you and God. That's an insur insurmountable gap. God knows everything. And just how we look at a kid and be like, no, you're going to hurt yourself. I'm telling you. I'm telling you this for your own good. And they don't understand and they disobey. We're the children of God. And that's often what we do. And so these, these, this, this obedience that we're, we're gifted to live in, these requirements, the law that God gives us, God gives us this because he loves us. <laughs> because he wants to be friends with us. Because he wants to help us. And so learning to trust God is what motivates us to do that. I know if you guys don't know who God is, you'll never want to, do, want to do what he tells you. And so my challenge for you all is don't just look at the Bible like this textbook of how, how to live the perfect life. The Bible is supposed to point you to the fact that you can never live the perfect life. No one ever will. Only Jesus did. That's the whole point. Jesus, he lived the perfect life we can never live. He obeyed every single law of the old covenant. He died the death in our place, and so now you don't have to. And I'm going to live my entire life trying to do it. I know I've been freed from the power of the sin that once kept me in slavery because of the Holy Spirit that's been poured into my heart through faith. But I know that I don't have to live the perfect life. Jesus did it for me, that he provided for me. So it meant trusting in God's provision will change you. This is why God had to teach this people this lesson every single day for 40 years. Because it informs how they live as a people. That if we're going to be the church, if we're going to be the body of Christ, the hands and feet of Jesus, this is an essential thing that we have to learn, what it means to wake up every day in total dependency on him. To wake up every day and declare, I am not enough, but you are enough. To wake up every day and say, I, I, I know that I can't live the perfect life, but you lived it in my place, so God, teach me. And to know that there's no shame in his presence because of that. That I never have to approach God with my head low, thinking of how all the horrible things I've done this week and all my mistakes and all of these flaws that I have. That because of what Jesus did for me, I get to enter into the throne room with thanksgiving and with boldness, knowing that I'm completely forgiven, my slate is completely washed clean, and I just get to enjoy him for who he is. At the veil of the temple was ripped in two when Jesus resurrected. And so this is the access that we have into God. And so, again, these, these two points that I just want to stress. Trust in God kills our worries. If you're afraid that you're not good enough, that you're not going to live the perfect life, that this world is big and scary and I don't know what to do, that you have these boy problems, you have these girl problems with someone you like at school, I don't know. Whatever it is, God is bigger than your problems. He's bigger than everything. And you were designed and built by God to trust him. You weren't designed to be enough on your own. You weren't designed to be some robot that is ultra-disciplined in every aspect of your life and that never makes mistakes. That is not what Christianity is about. Not even close. You were designed to know God, to love God, and more importantly, to be loved by God. 
His love motivates you. His enjoyment of knowing who he is and loving him every day, that's what gives me the power to go live the life that I get to live. Not my desire to be good. Now, I, 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 what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? I'm not trying to live the perfect life. I'm not trying out of this fear of self-preservation of I have to look out for myself, being greedy and being bitter with people and pushing away everyone that ever hurts me the tiniest bit and holding grudges and unforgiveness to people. I don't have to do that because I know that God provides for me. I know that God will always be there for me and he's going to be there for you too. And so we're going to go into small groups very soon. I I just want to encourage the small group leaders in the room um, I know what it was like to grow up as a kid in youth group and get used to hiding a lot of pain and to, to do all the fun games and secretly be harboring thoughts of suicide even. And I, I, don't, I don't have the time to get into my full story. I know it's a heavy thing to drop right at the end, right? I, I know what it's like to live a very depressing life, to give up on everything, to not trust God to provide. And I know what it's like to be on the other side, to be free of the depression and anxiety that once chained me free of everything that would hold me back, and now God is my best friend. And so much of that was not just me getting in the word privately, as good as that is. It was the leaders that poured into me. And so what I encourage you tonight, if you have a sin you need to confess, if you have a fear of the future you're terrified of, if you have these worries and these burdens in your conscience, this is why we're here. You can talk to us and tell us these things. Like these are the moments that we live for, and we want to pray for you. And I believe you're going to encounter the presence of God when we pray for you. And that the Holy Spirit's going to meet you right where you're at. So I encourage you, have deep conversations tonight. Dig in. Don't pull punches. We're only here for like two to three months for the interns, man. I'm gonna, I, I feel so sad I'm going to miss out on seeing you guys grow so much. I wish I could just hit the fast forward button and see you guys all become the men and women of God God designed you to be. But I know I can't. So anyway, we're going to head off into small groups. Nick, are you coming up or are we just dismissing? Oh, we're going to pray? That's a great, I love prayer. That's a great idea. Yeah, I'm going to keep it quick though. Okay. Jesus, you're amazing, Lord. You're the God who provides bread in the desert. And no matter what desert we feel like we're in, Lord, we trust you. Would you give us a faith to trust you deeper? Lord, I pray that we enjoy you more. I pray that we're motivated by a place of trust in you to obey you, knowing that you know it's best for us. God, I just pray a blessing and a favor over all of these kids All the various age groups in here, Lord God, wherever they're at, would you meet them where they're at? Would you encounter them, God? Would you pour your spirit out on them in a new, fresh way? In Jesus' name, amen.